Good morning. Thank you for having me here this morning. I'm honored to be here. And uh, thank you for leading us in worship and prayer. A little bit of an echo in here. I'm not sure if that's me or am I too close to the other mics? I'm good? Okay. So a couple of weeks ago um, was Labor Day and it had me thinking about work and how our faith connects to our work. Um, and we spend a big chunk of our life working, right? In fact, if we break up our life into, into time spent, we would realize that about one-third of our work is, uh, sorry, one-third of our life is committed to work, one-third is sleep. I just had a baby, or my wife did, so that's a little shorter right now. Um, and then one-third of our life is dedicated to everything else we do. And so with a very significant part of our life dedicated to work, we probably ask ourselves at some point, what is the meaning of our work? And if you're a Christian, there should be a follow-up question to that, and that is, what does following Jesus have to do with my work? So these are the two questions that I would like us to wrestle with this morning. And the answer to those questions depend on what kind of a story we attach to our work. Tim Keller, he's a, a well-known author and theologian. He says this, he says, your work will make no sense unless you attach a story to it. And the common story, a simplified version, but the common story in North America of work is essentially consume, meet your desires, and try not to die along the way, right? But this story, it lacks a deeper hope. If, if the gratification of our desires is really the purpose of work, well then we just kind of, we move through our week disaffected and with a self-centered and shallow view of work. We work for the weekend or we go through an entire career only for the hopes of a good retirement. And if this is our story, I would argue we lack um, a greater story of work, a story that moves beyond just working for self-gratification. But I believe that the Bible offers us a grander story of work, one of deep meaning and hope. And so this morning I want us to dive into that story a little bit. And this isn't just for pastoral work or for missionary work, and it's not just for paid work either. This story applies to you whether um, whether you do have a Monday to Friday, 9 to 5 job, but it also applies to unpaid work, whether you're a student or you're a stay-at-home parent or you're a retired person. Google Dictionary, um, source of all kinds of knowledge these days, Google Dictionary defines work as any activity that involves mental or physical effort in order to achieve a purpose. Any activity that involves mental or physical effort in order to achieve a purpose. So if you're in a season where you're beyond, you know, paid working, do you still do activity that requires mental or physical effort to achieve a purpose? Yes, you do. That's true for students, for stay-at-home parents, for people who are in the retired season of life. And it applies to those of us who are still getting a paycheck in our work. It includes all of us. And so now that we know that, um, none of us are off the hook of what the Bible has to say about work and faith. And the first thing we should probably acknowledge is that 
following Jesus should have a lot to say about our work, right? If Jesus is Lord of all areas of our life, then surely following him has something to do with where we spend the most amount of our waking hours. So in order to see our work through the story of the Bible, we need to see our work through four stages. And that's creation, how things were, the fall, how things are, redemption, how things could be, and restoration, how things will be. So let's start with creation at the beginning of of our Bible. If you have it, you can kind of follow along. We'll be in Genesis 1 and 2 a little bit. And a footnote here, I want to give credit where credit is due, and a large portion of the insights I gleaned on uh, for this theology of work is from uh, a guy named Dr. Tim Mackey. He does the Bible Project. He's an excellent teacher in terms of um, Old Testament stuff and, and has a great message on work. And so a lot of, I gleaned on a lot of his insights for this message. So Genesis 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Now the earth was formless and empty. So let's stop right there. Formless and empty, it doesn't quite do justice to the original Hebrew meaning. Uh, In Hebrew, it says this, it says, now the earth was tohu vavohu. I love saying that, it's just fun to say. And one commentator, he translates it as wilderness, and wasteland. And it's the, it's the exact same phrase that's used elsewhere in the Bible to describe the desert. And what is the desert? It's, it's wilderness and wasteland, right? It's tohu vavohu. So this is important to grasp for our message today. So what does God do with this creation that's in a state of wilderness and wasteland? Well, if you keep going on in verse 3 onward, you'll see that God begins to put order into the world, right? He separates day and night, sky and water, land and water. God is bringing order out of chaos. And then in verse 10, it says, and God saw that it was good. And in Hebrew, it says, God saw that it was tov. Do you hear the play on words here? He's bringing tov out of tohu vavohu. You don't even really need to know Hebrew to realize there's a play on words here. It sounds, there's a play on here. It's awesome. He brings goodness into creation, and in this instance, that goodness is, is bringing order out of chaos. And then what does God do? You read verse 11 onward. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation. Let there be lights in the sky. Sun, moon, and stars, right? Let the water, sky, and land teem with living creatures. And God said it was good. More tov. And what does God's tov look like here? Well, he packs his creation full of life and full of beauty. And then, skipping down to verse 26 and 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be couch potatoes and lay... No, no. That's, that's the wrong translation. No. He said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So at the pinnacle of creation, God creates humans. 
And right from the beginning, he says humans are to rule over creation and subdue the earth. Now, my generation, we have a little bit of a negative connotation with the word subdue. All kinds of cultural, political words come to mind. But it simply means to assert your will over something, not in a negative, exploitative way. Remember, evil hasn't even entered the story at this point. So why would we assert our will over something? Well, it's so that something can yield its potential, right? An example I can think of is, um, I grew up in a Mennonite community in northern Mexico, and it's apple country there. It's similar to, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank. What's apple country here in BC? Okanagan, thank you. So if you let an apple tree just go, just on its own, it's going to produce some fruit, right? But I remember going to the orchard as, uh, as a kid when the workers were pruning and then later on in the season they would thin out the, the first apples. And it kind of confused me and I asked my dad, why would you do that? And my dad explained to me that pruning the trees and then later on thinning out the apples, it's actually going to produce bigger fruit, better fruit, and ultimately more fruit. We do it, we subdue the apple trees to bring about the most amount of potential. And so what's the point of this? Why do we want to subdue something to bring about its maximum potential? Well, it's so that we benefit from it, right? We bring about benefit. Our apple orchard gave us a lot of benefit and filled our pantry with apples, which my mother then subdued into delicious apple pies. But it wasn't just for us. This was a big orchard. These apples benefited many, many people. So let's connect the dots here. God brings order, beauty, and potential into his creation to bring about benefit. Benefit for who? It's, it's not for God. Who does order, beauty, and potential benefit in the creation story? Us, yeah, the humans, right? Verse 29 makes that very clear. It says, Then God said, I give you every bearing, a seed-bearing plant and every tree that has fruit. They will all be yours for food. God's work benefits others. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Lots of tov. <laughs> God's work is to bring tov out of tohu vavohu through order, potential, beauty, and benefit. And then we get the first mention of the word work in the Bible. It's packed in three times in the same verse. At the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, it says, By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day made it holy, because on it he rested from the work of creating that he had done. And so in chapter 1 we get this picture of God as the first worker and humans as his co-workers. It's a beautiful picture. Humans participate in the kind of work that God is doing. And then Genesis 2 is a retelling of the same story told slightly differently. In Genesis 1, God is a worker and humans are co-workers. In Genesis 2, God is the grand gardener and humans are the co-gardeners. Chapter 2, verse 15, it says this. It says, The Lord God took the man 
and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And God told the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Remember that. But you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will die. So, is this a magical tree? Is there mysterious fruit going on here? What's going on here? No, this tree represents something much, much bigger, much, much larger. Who has been the sole provider of Tov this entire time? God. Everything He does has been good. He packs creation full of goodness. And God, in His goodness, offers free will to the humans. He gives them dignity to choose. It's an opportunity for moral judgment. Right? Humans need to make a moral judgment here. And that's something that we all do frequently in our work. So the question is, will humans humble themselves and trust God's definition of what is good? Or will they seize the opportunity to define good and evil for themselves apart from God? That's what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is representing. So they have a choice to make. And how long do the good times last? About two pages in the Bible. Chapter 3, we're introduced to an interesting creature, a serpent. And all that this story indicates is that this creature is in rebellion to God and its, a, and its goal is to try and entice humans to also rebel against God. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See how the serpent is twisting and misrepresenting what God actually said? Remember the phrase I asked you to remember? Flip back one page and what did God actually say? Here, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Go nuts. Enjoy it. I made it for you. There's just one that represents something much bigger that's not good for you to eat. So the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Come on, the snake says. You will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent plants doubt in their minds, right? He's kind of saying, maybe God is actually holding out on you. What if there's more? What if you're just a caged tiger? And he says, go ahead, open the cage. Then you'll really be free. You don't need God to tell you what's good or bad. You can be your own God. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Sometimes the joke is, oh, we blame Eve for the sin. No, no, no. He was with her and didn't do anything about it. We're, yeah, anyway, conversation for another time. And he ate it. What happens immediately after? Adam and Eve run away from each other because now suddenly it says they saw that they were naked. 
Now, don't just think, oh my gosh, they just realized they weren't wearing any clothes and now they realized it. No, to be naked means to trust one another. But now that humans have seized autonomy and decide what is good for themselves, well, maybe your definition of what is good is different than my definition. And maybe we're in conflict with our definition. So I'm going to distance myself from you and I'm going to protect my own interests. And you're going to do the same. Human relationships get distorted. Adam and Eve also hide from God. The relationship between God and humans gets distorted by sin. And as a result of all of, uh, of sin, all areas of our life, including work, gets distorted. Verse 17 in chapter 3 says this. It says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from food, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. So remember, work was a gift, it was good, and the ground still produces food for them to eat, it still produces benefit, but now there will be thorns and thistles that will cause resistance to human work, right? Sin acts like thorns and thistles, interrupting and frustrating and thwarting our goals for work, right? Our dreams and our goals for work don't seem to always reach their maximum potential. And so on the one hand, we have the good story of work in Genesis 1 and 2. And then on the other hand, we have the story of Genesis 3 where sin begins to distort work. And the reality is we live in a time where we do experience both of these stories, right? We do experience the Genesis 1 and 2 story of work, right? The, the satisfaction of bringing a job to completion, a job well done. The joy that comes from creating something beautiful or seeing potential into something that maybe others didn't see. These are stories that are good stories of work, right? The satisfaction that we get from doing something that actually blesses others, that benefits others. Whether you help someone with your income tax, you teach someone a new skill, you fix someone's appliance or their car or whatever it is. Retired people, you might lend your advice and your wisdom and your experience and you guide the younger generation. <coughs> Maybe you cook or bake someone something to, to, to bless someone. Any kind of service that benefits someone, we do actually enjoy that, right? We experience the, the goodness of Genesis 1 and 2 in our work. But then we also encounter Genesis 3, the reality of sin causing resistance in the goals that we have in our work, of thorns and thistles distorting what could be. Right? A deal falls through, a job loss happens, a financial crash in the market occurs, COVID happens, our work only benefits us, and maybe it's at the expense of others. You encounter dishonesty, cutting corners, bad work environments, unfair treatment, etc. So we do have the design of work, and we have the ruin of work, and so our question is, do we have any hope for the redemption of work? 
So let's go back to Genesis 3.14 because that's there's a really interesting, obscure section that is key to understanding the rest of the Bible. And it says this in verse uh, 14 onwards. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now remember, the snake represents evil and sin. And the offspring that will crush the head of the snake, it's pointing to the Gospels. It's pointing forward to Jesus. But the serpent will strike his heel. Now we fast forward to the Gospels and it tells us that Jesus did come to crush the power of sin and evil. To defeat the power of sin. He did this by sacrificing himself on the cross 2,000 years ago. And through this act of sacrifice and love, I believe that God is not only saving individual souls, but he is redeeming all of creation. And this is also really good news for our work. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Apostle Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So as Christians, Scripture says we are already new creations. We have already been redeemed. And this should manifest itself in our personal lives, maybe in our families and relationship, but nowhere else, right? No. It should deeply manifest itself in our work also. It doesn't just say that Christ makes us partially new or that only certain areas of our life are made new. If you are in Christ, the totality of who you are is new and is being made new. And that should play out in our Monday to Friday life, shouldn't it? God isn't done with making us new yet, and we know that all too well. We know that, that sin does still affect us. We can see how brokenness and sin still affects our relationships. It affects other people, our workplaces, our homes, out there in the world. And that's because we live in a time that the Bible scholars call the already but not yet. It's the time in between where God's kingdom has already started and been inaugurated through Jesus, but it's not yet fully here. It's not done yet. His kingdom on earth still lies in the future, right? So God's rule and kingdom is in a real way already present and transforming people, families and schools and work. But there's a future element to it. And it leaves us with a future hope of everything being restored, of how things will be. And the end of Revelation ends with this fulfillment of this hope. It ends with heaven coming to earth and God fully establishing his kingdom on earth again. It doesn't end with Christians all floating away to spend eternity playing harps on a cloud. I used to think that was the case and if I was completely honest, I was like, that doesn't sound very appealing to me. No, it ends with a greater story of heaven coming to bear reality here. Life without pain and suffering and death. Work 
without the thorns and thistles caused by sin. And so there is a real future hope that the story of the Bible offers us. And I think that's awesome. That's great. And so we think, okay, so if God's already defeated the power of sin, He's in the process of making all things new, I guess what's left to do for me but kick my feet up on my lazy chair and let the margaritas flow, right? And, and we'll watch the show. No. See, this is where our work and our participation actually matters. Remember, God made humans to be his co-workers, his co-gardeners. So right after Paul says that if you are in Christ, you're a new creation, right after that, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, we are now ambassadors for Christ. We are urged to work together with God and not to receive his grace in vain. Your work matters. And as new creations in Christ, as representatives of Jesus in the world, we can begin to work in ways that brings hope to others. Um, N.T. Wright, he's a New Testament scholar, and he says that Christians are people through whom hope can come into the world. So my question is, how does your presence in your work, whether as a retired person, a student, or you have a paid job, how does your presence at work bring hope to others? In 1 Corinthians 15:58, Paul says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our work here, it says, if it's done in Christ, it's not for nothing. It actually has eternal significance. If it's work done in Christ, then our work here actually contributes to God's kingdom. And so you might think, well, maybe certain kind of work contributes to God's kingdom, right? Maybe if you're a pastor or a missionary, maybe that kind of work contributes to God's kingdom, but not my job. My job is just secular. I just work at a coffee shop or in an office or I'm retired or I'm home raising kids. Like, how does my work contribute to God's kingdom? And N.T. Wright, again, he has a great, great example. He has an illustration about this. And he says, you know how, well, you know how you have those magnificent old churches and castles in, uh, in Europe? in England, especially in Scotland, they're beautiful old churches and castles that are built out of stone. Well, they constantly require stonemasons to be working on them, to keep them up. And so N.T. Wright, he says, imagine a brand new stonemason. The master stonemason, he assigns the apprentice a job. So you have a, a new apprentice stonemason, he's trying to earn his red seal or whatever certification they have in Europe. And the master stonemason says, here, here's a slab of stone, and I need you to chip away at it. I need, uh, I need you to put a little groove here, and I need you to cut a line here, and I need you to make it into this shape or that shape. And so the apprentice starts working away at his little slab of stone. But at some point, the apprentice gets a little discouraged, and he's wondering, 
what does my chipping away at this little rock have anything to do with that magnificent building behind me? I don't see the connection. And one day the master stone, uh, the stonemason will take the apprentice and he'll say, come along with me, I want to show you something. So the young apprentice walks along with the master stonemason and the master stonemason shows him a beautiful wall and he says, look up there, high up there, do you see that rock? He says, yeah, that's your rock. That's what you contributed. Isn't that cool? That was your work and your contribution. And in a similar way, we may not see how our work, what our work has to do with God's kingdom, but if it's work done in Christ, the Bible says we can be assured that although we might not see the significance of our work, if it bears the marks of Christ, His love, His character, no matter what you're doing, if it bears His marks, God will use it for His kingdom. And so the question is, okay, well, what kind of work qualifies as work done in Christ? What does work for God's kingdom look like? And Colossians 3, 23 through 24 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Whatever you do, it says, all honest work can be glorifying to God. Whether you're a student, stay-at-home parent, a retired person who's volunteering or mentoring someone younger or making amazing meals, whether you're a farmer, a librarian, you work in an office, you own a company, you work at a school, it doesn't matter. Work at it with all your heart because you're working for Christ. If you're a, if you're a Christian, your work, you are working for Jesus, right? It's the perfect Sunday school answer, but sometimes we don't actually pause to think about that. We may lend our time to somebody who, pay, who writes our paycheck, if you're still in those ages, but our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. And somehow we have bought into the idea that only certain jobs are glorifying to God while others are just, they're just secular jobs. Monday to Friday is just kind of our separate thing Sunday we're a Christian, or maybe in our small group. But that way of thinking about our work and our faith, you won't find it in Scripture. It's foreign to the New Testament, and it's not a holistic way of thinking about our life. Um, in fact, the great reformer Martin Luther, he lived in a time where people did believe that God-honoring work was only churchy work. If you were a priest or a monk or a nun, then your work was glorifying to God. All other work was just mundane, secular work. But Luther, he rejected that, that way about thinking very thoroughly. I love this. He has some pretty edgy quotes, but this is a good one. He said, A dairy maid can milk cows to the glory of God. Whatever it is that is your task to do in whatever season of life you find yourself in, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord because it is not in vain. Okay, so to summarize, what is the meaning of work? Well, that will depend on what kind of a story you attach to your work. 
the story of the Bible shows us that through creation, work is a gift. It's a gift of God meant to bring goodness through order, beauty, potential, and benefit for others. Because of the fall, our work's goals, they're going to be met with resistance, difficulties, and frustrations. And if you experience that in your work, it doesn't necessarily mean you're in the wrong job. It just means you live in a fallen world along with the rest of us and life is hard, right? <laughs> Redemption means that we are new creations and the way in which we carry ourselves at work, reflecting God's goodness, can bring hope to others, even to the darkest of work environments. And finally, restoration. Our work here, if it is done in Christ, is not in vain and it has eternal value as we trust and actively wait for God to fully bring about his kingdom and rule to our world. So lastly, how can you connect your faith with your work? Well, there's the obvious ones of giving a portion of your earning to the church, to a charity, to bless others. That's a great starting point. And of course, if you're bold enough and you have the relationship equity with people you work with, to share your faith at work, hopefully through genuine relationships and not, not in a negative way. Sometimes that's where our imagination stops, though. We'll give some of our, our earnings and we'll find ways to communicate our faith at work and that's it. But I think there's more to it. And so how else can you bring glory to God in your work? I think the... The options are unlimited, but I'm going to leave you with a few key ways that we can do this. And I think the first is um, to think about God's work of bringing Tov out of Tohu Vavohu and participate in that model in your own work. So you can ask yourself, where do you see disorder in your work that you can bring order to? Potential and beauty. This requires some imagination, and I don't have a prescription for each area of work, but where does the world maybe see trash, or this person is a waste of time, or this, is, this has no potential, but whereas Christians, we might be invited to see that through a different lens and say, no, I think there's beauty there. I think there's opportunity there. I think there's potential there. And benefit. How can your work bring benefit to others? Um, a story I heard of uh, a young barista, they, they work at coffee shops. For her, for her work, she made and served coffees for a living. But one or two days a week, this person committed to pray for every single person that she made coffee for. And I was blown away. I'm like, that is a ministry. That's amazing ministry. If you're a retired person, what would it look like to use what God has taught you in your life your experience, your wisdom, yes, even your mistakes, and share that with the younger generation? What would it look like to use your time to bless your neighbors, your church, and your community during this time? Or if you teach or lead an organization, what would it look like to show individual care for the least of them, for the least of the people in your organization? Maybe you're an employer of some kind, or you're creating, are you creating a work environment where your business is not just about making a buck 
and benefit for you, but you're actually trying to create a thriving environment for people who work there. Number two, work hard and with excellence. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, she's a Christian woman who was a writer. She said this, the only Christian work is good work well done. <laughs> Number three, rest. Keep the fourth commandment and take time to rest. We need rest so that we can actually love God well. We need rest so that we can actually love our neighbors well. I know for myself, I am a terrible human being if I am not well rested. <laughs> and fourthly, learn to pray the Lord's Prayer regularly in your work life because it calibrates our hearts and surrenders our work and invites God to bring about His will in our work, His kingdom in our work. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your goodness and for the gifts of work. But God, as our work, it's not always easy, it's not always pleasant, and sometimes we feel like our work doesn't have value. But you say that if it's done in your name, if it bears your character and your fruit of the Spirit, then it all matters. So I pray, Lord, that you may give us an imagination to discover where we can work to bring order and beauty and benefit for others. Teach us to see all of our work as acts of worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.